You're listening to Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, episode 24. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, the podcast that puts Bitcoin knowledge within everyone's reach. As always, I'm Josh Humphrey, your host, and today my guest is Bitcoin Maximalist, co-founder of the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute, and founder of BitcoinAdvisory.com, Pierre Rochard. Pierre, welcome to the show. Hey Josh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for coming on. And before we get into anything else, I just want to say thank you for the Bitcoin Maximalist dinner that you guys did in Dallas. That was a lot of fun. So uh, I really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for coming out to that. Uh, I agree. That was a huge amount of fun hanging out with a bunch of like-minded individuals in person. And it was maybe the loudest room I've been in in a very long time. Yeah, that was that was crazy. Um, and I don't know if the restaurant, uh, if we broke a record there as well. Yeah. Well, I was really impressed. This has nothing to do with <laughs> anything I want to ask in the interview. I was really impressed when I stepped out of that room that we were in that you really couldn't hear everybody. So whatever sound insulation they've got going on in those walls is top notch. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay, so what is your kind of, give me an idea, what's your background, even maybe even before Bitcoin or I don't know, uh, you know, what do you do outside of Bitcoin, I guess? Yeah, so I guess the first relevant part of my background uh, in high school, I got interested in like Linux and open source software, um, but I never really, uh, I never programmed. Um, and then I got really interested in Austrian economics. Um, and Ron Paul came along, got interested in libertarianism, anarcho capitalism. Uh, then I got my bachelor's and master's in accounting at UT Austin. Um, and the last year of graduate school at UT Austin, I was part of uh, something called the Mises Circle, which is like a reading group for Austrian economics. Uh, and I was part of that with Michael Goldstein and Daniel Krawitz. Um, and we were debating fractional reserve banking and 100% reserve banking. And at some point, the subject of Bitcoin came up. Uh, once I realized, and I'd heard about it like once before because of the Silk Road, but I didn't really, it, it didn't cross my mind that this was an interesting issue, despite the fact that, I mean, I'd been reading about Austrian monetary economics since you know, I was a junior in high school. Um, but when I heard about it the second time, I actually, you know, f- f- did a little bit of research and found it's monetary policy. And when I saw that chart of like, there's only going to be ever be 21 million Bitcoins. It immediately struck me that this was a very, very interesting economic experiment uh, that if it was successful uh, would ultimately lead to the demise of fiat currencies, which I'd been kind of railing against, uh, you know, with and the Fed and whatnot for years. Um, and so that's, that's where things started at late 2012, early 2013 for me. So is that, so the Mises circle, is that how you and Michael met? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we, um, I, I, 
I knew of him on uh, Facebook because I was in some of the same groups, but I'd never hung out with the libertarians uh, in real life at UT Austin before that. And so, uh, yeah, I just remember walking into this classroom and uh, Michael was sitting, you know, shit posting memes on Facebook uh, about Ludwig von <laughs> Mises. Um, and yeah, so we, we quickly became friends. And now you, I know that you and Michael kind of do the, the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute thing, and um, you've got a couple of other projects. What, what do you do in the, in the meat space? Like what, do you have a day job? Uh, so I uh, was working as a software engineer until I had my son in February, and I've been on, on paternity leave since. But yeah, I've got to I've got to get a day job at some point and make uh, some more income. But uh, in the meantime, enjoying time with my son and getting lots of time to do Bitcoin related things. Let's start out with kind of going over you. You had an article right before the Bitblock Boom conference, and then you kind of talked about these ideas again at the conference um, about Bitcoin governance. You know, you talked about like this this idea of Bitcoin being intersubjective. And that objective governance creates a a single point of failure. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit? It kind of operates on multiple different levels. But basically, I mean, if we're talking about Bitcoin's governance, uh, the consensus rules, that is the transaction and validation uh, verification rules that everyone agrees upon, uh, you know, and we kind of globally call consensus. those exist as an intersubjective reality in the sense that they are um, they're not chosen objectively by whether it's Satoshi or by um, any one person or any one group of people like the miners or something like that. Um, rather, there's they're software that's chosen to be run by this set of nodes. And the people making those choices are free individuals looking at, you know, free and open source software. Um, so it's up to them to kind of form this emergent consensus of what Bitcoin is. Um, and that's an intersubjective reality in the sense that the Bitcoin Cash people who, uh, for some strange reason, are in RBTC, they should be in RBCH, but uh, they believe right. that. Bitcoin is Bitcoin Cash, um, and the Bitcoin Cash is Bitcoin. So um, they are living in their own intersubjective reality, uh, while I think most of the rest of the world uh, understands that um, Bitcoin is one specific uh, currency uh, money that's attached to a specific set of validation rules and a uh, history, a blockchain. How how important is social signaling. So let me, let me just preface this with, I've, I've seen the UASF hats and for my own self, like uh, it was probably about a year ago when people were talking about SegWit that I, I owned Bitcoin, but I didn't understand it. Like I had a, I had a loose understanding of how blockchain worked, but I did not understand, like I hadn't been in the forums. I hadn't really done any technical reading. And so between the, the UASF and then after that, but before 2X is when I kind of started doing the technical deep dive and like actually understanding how things work. But like 
from someone who was there kind of at that time and seen other things before that, how important is this idea of like social signaling? Uh, yeah, that's a really interesting question. So um, if I think back on my own experience with the, uh, I think the premiere and just, there's just no other debate that's comparable to it in the history of Bitcoin's governance, uh, which is the block size limit. Um, and when I look back, I, I had a view on it uh, from the moment I got into Bitcoin and, and heard about this when one megabyte limit that it just if when I read the white paper and saw that the block reward would be replaced by transaction fees, um, it became apparent to me that that means that there needs to be a, a fee market and pressure for higher fees because the relying on the technical limitations of block propagation times and um, self-restraint by uh, miners uh, seem to be a, a quick way to get everything centralized uh, where basically you wouldn't be able to run a node that that ultimately is how you automate the uh, your subjective view of what the Bitcoin verification rules are. Um, so it, it intuitively made sense to me that there would be denial of service um, limitations on uh, things in the protocol. And so we see that with the block size limit, but there's also like a SIG ops per block limit and SIG ops per transaction limit uh, to minimize the amount of, um, or at least mitigate the resource usage from uh, transactors on the network. Uh, and so, because there are no negative externality on uh, nodes. So um, I, I, I saw I saw the biggest issue with hash rate is it being too low in the long run. And to prevent a ha the hash rate being too low in the long run, the this limit on the block size, w whatever it may be uh, as time evolves, um, but it's crucial because uh, if you're trying to think about how a business would maximize revenue, if they are a monopoly and so miners are a monopoly on uh, shot on um, on timestamping uh, on this secure timestamping. The secure timestamping function of Bitcoin is a unique thing. So there's no way to um, there's no. It's not like there would be two competing timestamping functions within Bitcoin. Like theoretically, that's possible, but that doesn't exist. Um, and so basically this timestamping function is a monopoly. And if you think about how to maximize the revenue for a monopoly, it's not the case that you uh, just release or create as many goods as the market needs, as, as people need, um, because your marginal revenue starts dropping dramatically. Uh, and the by limiting supply and creating artificial scarcity, uh, you can drive up total revenue beyond just what you would have gone from gotten from uh, having more marginal revenue from you know producing more units. So, like I mean, the classic example would be like a luxury good, right? Like so, uh, a limited edition Lamborghini. You only make four hundred of them, uh, and presumably the total revenue you get from that would be greater than mass producing these um, because they would just lose their collector's value. Uh, so th that's kind of the way I was thinking about the issue of revenue maximization to prevent a too low hash rate uh, in the in you know 
once the block as the block reward gets phased out. Um, and the reason you want to have a, a healthy hash rate, and you know, we can debate about what what level or what you know range of hash rate makes sense, but um, basically, the lower the hash rate is, the more confirmations you have to wait for. Uh, if you want to have the same guarantees, um, all else equal. So uh, today the rule of thumb is like six confirmations. If hash rate was quote unquote too low, maybe it would be like 60 confirmations or 600 confirmations. And then that that is directly tied to also the amount of value being transacted. So, you know, if people are using Bitcoin as a means of global settlement, and that would mean that you would have, you know, multi-billion dollar uh transactions, payments going through uh, the Bitcoin network. And uh, it would be bad uh, if people had to wait years before being able to spend those uh, because the hash rate's too low. Um, So, uh, yeah. So real quick, I'm just curious, what are you... What are you saying would cause that hash rate to be too low? Well, because of the uh, block reward halvings. So... Uh, is we have these halvings and they're very aggressive, right? And so basically, um, I actually had the spreadsheet open earlier today, but the it, it's a dramatic drop off in terms of what percentage of, uh, you know, uh, the stock to flow ratio, uh, how that's affected. So every four years, you know, we go from 50 Bitcoins created every 10 minutes to 25 to 12.5. Uh, to 6.25, et cetera. And um, if over the long run, if those happenings don't have or are not coinciding with an increase in the transaction fees, which go to the miners, uh, that means that the miners' total revenue is drifting down uh, and getting halved every four years. Um, and at some point, uh, the block award you know, in 2100 is zero. But that's not really the relevant point in uh, in time to be looking at. Like it's it's the problem is not going to arise when we go to a block reward of zero. The problem is going to arise probably within, I would argue, like 12 years uh, to 16 years. Uh, so by no means, like I say, it's long run. But really, I mean, it's not really that long run. You know, there's uh, right. Um, and at least for people with a low time preference. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like it's well within our lifetimes. You know, we're all very young. So uh, it's something that is is important to be thinking about. Uh, and especially because uh, when do you want to break user expectations is the question. So do you want people to be dependent on cheap layer one transactions uh, until it's too late? Or do you want to break that expectation early on in the system so that people have more time to adapt and create layer two solutions whether they're trustless or trusted. Yeah, yeah. The longer you put the problem off, the worse it, you know, inevitably it's going to happen. And so the worse it'll be, or the, the more drastic it'll have to be whenever it actually happens. Yeah, I actually, I want to come back to your uh, original question because it was a very interesting question about this, the signaling and how much it matters. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm almost getting, I'm almost there. Uh, so um, <laughs> I, I debated this issue with Gavin Andreessen on IRC back in the day. And um, I thought that his point of view reflected the point of view of the rest of the Bitcoin core contributors at the time, because he was leading the project. He was putting out blog posts that were talking about 16 megabyte, 32 megabyte blocks. Um, 
And so at the time, I thought, wow, these Bitcoin core developers are are nuts. They they want massive blocks, and like people like Mike Hearn and uh, Jeff Garzik, they seem to be going along with it. And they're like well known people, you know, developers. Certainly better known than the other ones at the time. Um, and so th- that I, I use that example because I thought I was also when I read like Reddit threads and whatnot. I thought that I was in the minority with regards to the issue of uh, the block size limit. And I thought that the situation was basically, uh, you know, a, a, a already baked in conclusion that there was going to be block size limit increases, uh, despite my opposition and my belief that they are bad for Bitcoin in the long term. Um, and it really wasn't until uh uh twitter but uh, you know the uh i would say the there the resistance towards uh xt at the time was the first hard fork attempt and then there were other ones like bitcoin classic uh and seeing the opposition with each you know new attempt uh grow louder and louder and stronger and stronger and that crescendoed into the no 2x movement uh, in November when uh, the their whole f- thing fell apart uh, and you know victory was achieved. But uh, I think that the social signaling is really important. The problem is that you never know if you're getting sibled or not. So you have to have a web of trust that allows you to. Uh, see these signals and trust them. Uh, if you see, see, because if you just see these signals in terms of sock puppet, uh, you know, Twitter or Reddit accounts that were bought and paid for, and they're just putting out this information, and you don't even know who these people are, or uh, they're they don't have a years long background in the industry, or uh, you know, commenting on Bitcoin or being on Twitter and shit posting. Uh, it's very easy to like be misled about where the support is. You know, they'll like ballot stuff, the uh, polls and all this. But if you have a web of trust, that is that people that have been around for a while now and you've seen them generally say things that you agree with. Uh, and even people that have t- attached their real identities to their Twitter profile or you've met in real life and, uh, you know, have allowed themselves to be doxxed. Um, so that that begins to form a web of trust that then when you have signals about what does the community support or not, uh, well, you can verify that in your web of trust uh, pretty easily. Um, so uh, yeah, that's, that, that's my spiel on that. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. That's just funny to me. I see what you're saying and I agree but it's just funny, like we're 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 building this network of trust minimized, yep. you know, uh, interactions, and yet at some point when these changes happen, trust still is very important. Well, to an extent, right? Because uh, let's say that the people you were trusting uh, were not trustworthy. Uh, that means that basically, if if you were doing UASF, right, for example, uh, then your node would. Uh, stall out because no blocks would be getting mined for you. Um, And so you kind of have to look at like, okay, if this trust was betrayed, what are the consequences? In the case of something like UASF, uh, 
um, for for the most part. I mean, I, I know that there are situations where there could be a loss of funds or uh, wider issues, but for the most part, it seems like if if your node, if you were misled into running this node that has a consensus rules that no one else is going to follow, there's no consequences for that. Uh, in fact, you could just run a UASF node and a you know let's call it Satoshi legacy node uh, simultaneously. Uh, And so in that regard, I I think that's why now that's why it's basically a shelling point is my argument too, is that a shelling point consensus or a a shelling point, sorry, uh, is, um, is something that two parties come to without ever communicating with each other. So like, one example is, and this is my favorite example, is if you were in New York City, I don't know, have you visited New York City, Josh? I have. Uh, I've been twice briefly. So, so. let's see if this yeah. uh, shelling point experiment uh, it works out. So you're in New York City and someone else is in New York City and you're going to meet them on a specific day, but you don't know at what specific time and you don't know at what specific location. So you have to think about where would this other person, uh, you know, expect to meet me and where do they expect that I would expect to meet them? So it's kind of like a circular thing um, because you can't communicate with this yeah. other person. So wh- what time of day and what location would you pick? Hmm. Is do I get to know anything about the other person, no, or that's no, it? No, that's that's part of the shelling point. Is that you're you're, you're basically <laughs> you're only reliant on uh, a like your past personal experience, but also b your understanding of the topography of uh, New York City and all of the different options that are available to you in terms of meeting places uh, and their relative benefits versus other locations of meeting, uh, and then you know the time is. Uh, obviously you've got 24 hours on the clock, but you also um, would want to think about when would someone want to meet and what time would be convenient for the average person. Yeah, so, right. So mm, I'm going to go with, uh, <laughs> so not not having a good understanding of like paths to get around the city. So So I don't have a good understanding of like, the train system or the buses or anything like that. So not knowing that I'm going to go with the empire state building at noon. All right. So you're half right. Uh, noon is correct, but it would actually, okay. Most people. And so like, that's the thing too, is that there's several different shelling points. So in this example, you have ended up with the Bcash people, uh, at the empire. No, um, because all the Bitcoiners are at grand central station. Ah, Yeah. Okay. I can see that. That makes more sense. Yeah. So it, that I think illustrates the, the concept of a uh, shelling point. So if you were to survey a thousand New Yorkers, you would find that 800 of them would tell you Grand Central Station. Uh, and then the rest would be off in Looney Land, either at the Empire State Building or the Statue of Liberty or the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, like there's or uh, Central Park or something. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. See, I wasn't going to pick Statue of Liberty because of the you know, it, it takes a little, yeah, a lot more effort to get there. I know that much. For sure. And when you say Grand Central Station, that makes sense, of course, because it's such a hub yeah. of transit. Yeah. So, 
but I, but I wasn't thinking transportation wise. So okay. But but noon is the correct time. Noon is the correct time. Yeah, that's just the most convenient time for everyone, right? So you're you're trying. So shelling is like you're trying to guess what someone else would guess that you would guess. Right, and and you don't have information from them. You know, you can't communicate with them, and so I think that if we assume that social signaling on Twitter is compromised, which I think you know is a good healthy assumption to have, um, then you are playing a, a shelling point game. And it kind of falls on, you know, do you think that other people are going to run UASF? And then that means that you got to do research on the topography of Bitcoin, right? And so like, yeah, and the possible different sets of Bitcoin validation rules. And you got to look at these different validation rules and kind of think like, you know, you know, well, so first of all, there's a huge default towards the existing validation rules. Um, And so you've got to like keep that in your mental model. Uh, but otherwise, you're evaluating these different validation rules and thinking about whether other people are going to show up that shelling point with you. Okay. So then why, since we're, we're kind of in that same time frame a year later as when uh, UASF and the hard fork and all this stuff happened, why, you know, my understanding was at least at some point of a good majority of the mining consensus was was leaning towards bcash Ex- explain to me why I, mean, I think i have an idea but like why that doesn't matter yeah. and, ma- and maybe 2x is a better example yeah for sure um so the reason that the miners didn't really matter uh for the segwit 2x issue um they committed to participating for up to 24 hours and essentially be mining at a loss um, because what what happens is that if miners um, first of all if ninety percent of the miners uh, leave that means that mining a block takes ten times longer so that's a hundred minutes so now we're in forty minutes so that means that Bitcoin blocks would still the legacy chain Bitcoin blocks would still be getting mined uh, you know every hour and forty minutes assuming that its value remained the same on the exchanges right. Because then, if the miners would leave even more if the if the value dropped on the exchanges, um, the Segwit two X right. uh, people thought that by uh, taking the hash rate and directing it in another direction, they could cause the exchange rate at which Bitcoin is trading to to change, and so essentially that the BTC chain would uh, collapse in value and the S two X chain would increase in value. Um, from the miners doing that. And they kind of got backed into this uh, silly um, charitable mining theory because they tried to have it so that there was no replay protection. So that essentially uh, exchanges would not be able to list both uh, the old chain and the new chain, but rather that they would be forced to go along with the quote-unquote upgrade uh, but what ended up happening is that exchanges implemented um, uh, replay protection manually. And so that generally uh, entails mixing um, Bitcoins that were mined in the other chain uh, with their coins in transactions. And so by by mixing the uh, block reward in with your coins, you can uh, cause them to be replay protected on that chain. Um, 
So this uh, this made it such that the exchanges would have been able to list both the Segwit2x coin and the uh, Bitcoin. Um, and thus, you know, they would be trading in value. And the miners understood quickly by looking at the futures prices that showed that uh, Bitcoin would have 90% of the value that they wouldn't be mining this S2X coin for very long because it would be so un- unprofitable to do. Um, and really kind of, it's just, it's a vicious uh, prisoner's dilemma because if the miners, the first miner to defect, you know, gets more and more transaction fee revenue based on the mempool backlog that's building up. Um, something that Bcashers often miss is that uh, the while uh, nodes do not mine blocks, right? Miners do. Uh, nodes do have mine right. pools that accumulate f- transactions that have an escalating uh, transaction fee attached to them. So at some point, a miner is incentivized to defect and come along and mine the chain that has value. Uh, and this actually, I think the part of this misunderstanding is like a difference between the um, classical slash Marxist labor theory of value and the Austrian uh, individual subjectivist uh, theory or marginal theory of value. Um, so they they kind of got tripped up on their economics there. Um, and that's why, yeah, that's why uh, 90% of the miners not liking Bitcoin is okay. I mean, they're, they're mercenaries. I don't really care if they like Bitcoin or not. They're just there to provide a, a secure timestamping function for the consensus rules. Right. And, and for those who aren't aware, um, so the Marcus, the, let me see if I can do this real quick. So the Marxist labor theory of value says that, uh, you know, this product required X amount of labor put in by the worker and so it therefore should cost that many dollars or whatever, or, or correlated, yeah. you know, have a correlated value to how much labor was put into it versus the Austrian view is that the value of a thing is determined by the, the person. It's a subjective value determined by the person who's willing to pay for it. Exactly. That's exactly right. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do that quickly or not, but no, that yeah, was that flawless worked. explanation okay. of those. Yep. So while we're talking about social social things, um, I've heard you talk uh, a number of times about the benefits of of creating your own Twitter echo chamber. Um, so so why do you why do you think that's good? Because I know that there's a lot of people, and and this is not in Bitcoin necessarily in particular, but there's a lot of people in general right now who, uh, let's say, in American politics or whatever, in, in just looking at how extreme you know, different sides get and just say like, we need to, you know, this only happens because we close ourselves off and we don't listen to the other side. And then it gets so extreme that we we're not even on the same planet anymore in a sense. Um, so, so they, they say that, you know, instead we should be listening to people from all sides of the argument and conversing with them. Why, why do you say that an echo chamber is good? Oh, um, so I, I don't know that that assessment of uh, politics is correct. Like to me, the, the reason people become uh, um, so uh, like conflicted with in conflict with each other over politics, in my view, is because of uh, 
the ever expanding reach of the federal government and uh, the you know ever decreasing amount of local control over uh, issues. Um, so whether it's like the Second Amendment or abortion or whatever, um, and that essentially a different groups of people are going to evolve in different directions. And so I think that uh, different parts of the U.S. should be able to have their own policies, and then we wouldn't have to have these big national debates where your policy is either uh, forced upon others or the other people's policies are forced upon you. Um, and so I think that uh, Bitcoin's solution to that is that if you don't like the policies of the the you know current shelling point, um, then you are free to create your own cryptocurrency um, and fork off or uh, you know create something from scratch. Um, so uh, in in that context, I, I don't see an issue with uh, essentially censoring out any views that I don't generally agree with. Um, and the there's there's different like forms of of me rationalizing slash justifying this, but um, at the end of the day, it's like I I, I enjoy Twitter to the extent that I can filter what is getting into my feed. Um, and I would cease enjoying Twitter or visiting it if the feed didn't uh, provide me with things that I found to be uh, pleasant and interesting. Um, and really, I mean, there's a lot of exaggeration in the sense that me being in a filter bubble and like being in an echo chamber, you'd be amazed by the amount of controversy that exists within this echo, echo chamber and how many people disagree with each other uh, and uh, the the arguments that I have. And so um, I, I don't think that... Well, so the, the other aspect of it is that having like been around for five years now, I think I've heard every stupid argument and every intelligent argument for and against like every topic in... Uh, crypto and people like to think that their project is like new and interesting, but uh, generally just like fits into a pre-existing category of being like an app coin or an altcoin or uh, a security uh, or a gift card or airline miles. You know, like it's not like they're going to come up with something that's like, whoa, this is a new form of economic good that I had not ever imagined would happen. Like, uh, I, I, no one's going to repeat what Satoshi did and like make something come out of thin air. It's it's just people uh, a- aping or um, uh, uh, you know doing live action role play of being innovators. Yeah, no, I agree, and I I mean some of that was just I, I just I just wanted to hear the way you said it. I I agree on the the stuff about federal control and that um, you know giving more control back to the states would be good or, or even them. I, I think I'd be okay with a lot of secession. Um, and then, and then with Twitter, I, I mean, everybody's got their own version of to, to some extent, right? Like I, I can't control the algorithms, but I can control my filters. And I, if I don't want to hear what someone has to say, I can mute them or block them or, or whatever. And so everybody does it to some extent. It's, you know, um, uh, I, I will say, and I, I can't emphasize this point enough, is that uh, 90% of the problem is the quality of the people who disagree with me. And so, like, <laughs> I, 
I'm serious. Like I follow, you know, Preston Barron, who's like a crypto skeptic and a Bitcoin skeptic. And I just, I, I, th- I think he expresses himself intelligently and has intelligent arguments. Uh, and so there's no reason for me to mute block or not follow him. But like all of these people who, uh, you know, have like drive by tweets that are just like weak attempts at trolling, you know, like uh, it's it, if you're going to be trolling, like make it uh, put effort into it. It's not just like, oh, you know, you're paid off by Blockstream or, you know, oh, you're just like a core troll shilling for a Segwit coin. It's like that's not going to that you're going to get muted like that's instantly going to happen. It's yeah. not like I'm going to be like. Oh, let me follow up with that and see what arguments he has. And then I'll see if I can change my mind or if I'm unpersuaded. Like, that's just in that context, it's just never going to happen. Uh, now, if they'd entered my feed and entered my mentions with a thought provoking and like at least semi respectful, I'm not asking you to like kiss my ass, but just like not uh, be abusive, uh, then uh maybe i'll i'll read it and actually follow up on it but yeah that's that's the other thing too is that uh w- why why not have an echo chamber if like most of it is just uh sewage yeah repetitive sewage yeah okay so moving kind of moving you you're in you're in new york correct uh yeah correct okay so so being there and kind of being near all of the i mean this is a this is a a rough segue here but um being around kind of the financial side of things the traditional finance side of things um is i I think there's been a lot of talk and you know this etf yes no yes no thing you know people talk about institutional money um institutional money is coming into Bitcoin. It's definitely coming in now or it's not coming in now or whatever. And and there's a lot of people that say, oh, this would be really good or whatever. Well, kind of what are your thoughts on that? And like, what what does that even mean, I guess, for, for somebody who, um, you know, maybe for, for younger audiences that don't actually have an understanding of what institutional money means, like, what does that mean? And, and, mm-hmm. and do you think that we need it or that it would be good for Bitcoin or whatever? Yeah, sure. Uh, so um, I would just start with like uh, defining what a retail investor is. Uh, and so if you are uh, living paycheck to paycheck, you know, with your W-2 and you're an employee and uh, you um, or you have no savings. Right. And thus you're not able to invest in anything. And so you are not even a retail investor. OK, now. <laughs> Let's say you are saving <laughs> 10 to 20% of your salary and putting that away. Uh, you're investing in your 401k and you're investing uh, in your retirement accounts. And after that, you even have money left over. So you are investing in your taxable accounts uh, and you're building up a nest egg to buy a house or uh, to quit your day job and try to start your own business. Um, so at that point, you're a retail investor. And uh, so there's different... Um, ways that a retail investor invests, whether it's uh, through you know tax deferred or tax advantaged uh, retirement accounts, taxable accounts, um, and they they do this through financial institutions. And so, for example, uh, something that has been kind of in the air is 
Fidelity uh, Investments is kind of a a platform for a lot of retail investors who have you know their their investment accounts with Fidelity. And there's been noise about Fidelity adding Bitcoin as kind of like you know essentially having Coinbase inside of Fidelity, um, where you would be able to um, buy Bitcoins in your taxable or potentially your um, uh, retirement accounts. And so that's kind of like the first way that you could think about um, quote unquote institutional investment being involved, which is that financial institutions providing access to retail investors uh, as a way of uh, diversifying their portfolios. So now within individual retail investors, uh, you can get into like high net worth individuals, right? And so there they've got uh, different ways of investing and maybe they actually, they can invest in Bitcoin futures already. And so they've got that covered, uh, but they'll, they'll go and they're, uh, you know, accredited investors and whatnot, and they'll go invest in their buddy's hedge fund or a private equity firm or uh, however it may be, or, or, uh, their nephew's uh, crypto hedge fund. And so there's kind of another way of uh, quote unquote institutional investment is it's like all of these new uh, crypto hedge funds that are specially marketing themselves as, you know, hey, we're going to be doing different kinds of strategies uh, around uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies uh, to provide a return to your, to your investment. Um, so like these strategies range from things like doing arbitrage between exchanges or uh, you know trying to do some like high frequency trading in the order book and market making um, to actually doing fundamental research on on different coins and kind of coming up with a view on hey this is going to outperform Bitcoin or uh, do well in dollar terms or whatever it may be um, and then kind of the degenerate form of that of Oh, you know, I am friends with this guy who's doing an ICO and he's giving me a pre-allocation and I'll help him pump it and like get retail investors to buy it based on a false narrative. Um, so that's kind of like the shady earth aspect of it. Uh, but uh, the there was another thing. Oh, yeah. Just like participating in like pump and dumps and keeping an eye on sentiment on Twitter and kind of figuring out ways to uh, allocate capital that way. And like the, a, a lot of these things had been done um, by individuals in the past uh, and kind of on their own account. Now, what's different here is that these crypto hedge funds have money from outside investors who uh, may or may not have any idea as to what you know cryptocurrencies are and whatnot. They're just seeing an opportunity here based on what they saw on CNBC or whatever. Um, so that definitely exists today and they have put hundreds of millions, if not, yeah, probably just hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, into the cryptocurrency markets widely. But I mean, any, any of these guys, like they, they have some allocation to Bitcoin, um, even if they're complete shit coiners, like that just can't help themselves. Uh, they will have some, you know, 10% to 60% allocation on like a market cap weighted uh, basis. Um, and you also have uh, index funds. So there's like this uh, index fund called Hold10. Uh, and there it's it's like a crypto hedge fund, except they're saying, we're going to buy the top 10 cryptocurrencies and we're going to passively hold them 
uh, and we'll rebalance as time goes by. But we're not actually doing any research on uh, these underlying uh, protocols or we're not actively trading or anything like that. It's just passive exposure to this group of uh, cryptocurrencies. So that's another vehicle that um, is accessible to uh, high net worth individuals and kind of becomes an institutional investor in its own right. Um, and that's when like, so past high net worth individuals doing these things, uh, there's uh, what's called family offices, which is basically like at some point someone has so much money that uh, they basically need to have their own in- or want to have their own investment firm uh, to be making uh, these trades or uh, these um, coming up with these uh, investment theses and uh, different, um, you know, allocations and whatnot on their own uh, without using a, a crypto hedge fund, or maybe they, they're like a fund of funds, right? And they're uh, investing in crypto hedge funds in, you know, 10 different crypto hedge funds thinking that, hey, one of these is not a scam. Um, and <laughs> th- so that's, that is actually, that I think that's like um, the current wave of institutional investors getting involved. And that's very much like the tip of the spear they are they are uh, at the forefront of this because basically they don't have the limitations that a lot of other institutional investors have. And also it's a situation where, hey, if the family, you know, if, if the uh, person who is uh, whose wealth this is uh, in the uh, family office thinks that Bitcoin's a good idea um, and was convinced by his golf buddy that Bitcoin's legit, uh, they can set the direction of where the you know investments are going to go uh, without having to consult or having much red tape um, compared to uh, a different kind of company. So, for example, like I think the the very late adopters in uh, crypto are going to be the very large hedge funds, right? So the hedge funds that have billions of dollars under management, um, they're going to. They, they just because they're older and they're bigger and they have more processes and they're more limited in the scope that they can have compared to like a family office, um, it's just going to take them longer to, to invest in Bitcoin. And so uh, the reason that this matters for Bitcoiners is because it's just a continuation of the trend, right? So, you know, we started out with like uh, very poor retail investors who didn't know what they're doing and we still have a lot of that. Um uh, and gradually you had like the Winklevoss twins, you know, put in like millions of dollars. Um, right. And that happened in 2013, early 2013. Um, so like you could consider that to be like, and then there was like Barry Silbert too. Um, you know, you can consider them to be like the first big whales that moved in that are like public and um, well known. So uh, it's a continuation of the trend. It, it indicates that Bitcoin is increasingly liquid an increasing number of people are understanding the investment theses for Bitcoin and uh, realize that its potential is massive and also has a high percentage chance of actually being realized. Um, and it's still undervalued relative to that. So do you think like big, I'm trying to think how to word this. Do you think big institutional investors are necessary to get us to hyper Bitcoinization or or does it just speed things along and eventually we would get there anyway? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, definitely the latter. 
and then we can argue about how much they speed things up. Uh, because <laughs> I, I really, I mean, I think that if all of us uh, just kept, you know, hodling as retail investors, like we would get there because uh, the millennials, quote unquote, you know, like they are the rising generation and they're uh, investing in Bitcoin as like, you know, every two weeks with their paycheck, they uh, put a little away in Bitcoin and a lot of them are like actively trading it and whatnot. Um, and so eventually the retail investors would cause hyper Bitcoinization in the sense that there would just be very little demand for dollars and uh, you'd have a currency substitution effect. But realistically, like the entry of institutional investors dramatically accelerates the pace at which we're going to have full currency substitution. And the reason that is, is that uh, the, the, the best way to really pour gasoline on the flames of Bitcoin is to uh, borrow fiat from the fractional reserve banking system and thus create money uh, in the fiat system and buy Bitcoins with that. And so that's kind of like leveraged buying of Bitcoins where you're getting your leverage from the fiat system. And that introduces a feedback loop where uh, they're essentially printing money to acquire Bitcoins. Um, and then the dollar collapses. Uh, and that's kind of just a speculative attack. So you don't want so it's investors doing this because they're going to be borrowing against like their house or their credit cards and essentially like they if if things go bad right so if if we're into a prolonged bear market uh and they're over leveraged uh and then they have to like panic sell to you know meet their mortgage payment or whatever like that's a bad situation and then they they need somewhere to live and now they've got to you know, get foreclosed upon and move out of their house. So you don't want retail investors uh, getting leveraged up. That's not a good outcome. What you want is institutional investors who are getting leveraged up, borrowing money from banks uh, and using, you know, trash like uh, treasuries uh, or you know, stocks as collateral and using those to leverage up. Uh, and so if things go bad, well, okay, this guy's like not a billionaire anymore. He's only a hundred millionaire, um, but it's not like someone's out on the street uh, homeless. Um, and that's why now, granted, like there's a lot of institutional investors that are investing on behalf of other people. So like pension funds, like they should not be getting involved in Bitcoin and they especially should not be getting involved with making leveraged, you know, purchases of Bitcoins in an attempt to cause a speculative attack. Like, it would be very irresponsible of them given their constituency. Um, but if you are like George Soros and uh, you don't give a fuck, you're just trying to make money, uh, then sure, why not go for broke and try a speculative attack against Bitcoin? So, so a lot of it has to do with the fact that they have access to to different opportunities than than you know yeah. us plebs. And then yeah. also that the, the risk is less to them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so the other th aspect of it that is good to think about is like, um, you know, like Chiefy, when he was unnoted, he was talking about like central banks buying Bitcoins with 1% of their reserves, right? And so like they would not notice if 1% uh, 
disappeared because they're making like five to eight percent a year, you know? Um, And that one percent, though, for an institutional investor might represent hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, uh, which for us plebs would be like a fortune. (laughs) So uh, it, 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 because they're very diversified, it dilutes the risk. Um, and then really the main thing though, in my mind is that how, how, how can you access credit? Right. And so if your only way of accessing credit is by, um, putting at risk something that you need to make money, like your, your car, for example, like it would suck that your car gets repoed, repossessed, um, because you were like overextended on your, uh, Bitcoin purchases. Then you can't make yeah. more money in your S. Yep. And then uh, to kind of bring it back to what we were talking about earlier, do these, I guess, especially if you've got these uh, institutional people, if they're public and, and, and open about this, um, maybe not necessarily with their exact uh, amount that they've got in it, but just the fact that they are, uh, that probably brings back in a social effect again of like, other people, you know, like, let's say tomorrow, somebody like Bill Gates or Charlie Munger or um, Warren Buffett changed their stance and said, well, okay, like, I guess, it, you know, a small amount going in is fine. You know, I've seen so many people that are like, yeah, see, you know, Warren Buffett says Bitcoin's a bad idea. Like, does their position change? And does that bring in more retail investors? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's like a huge number of people who worship Warren Buffett and will do whatever he tells them, you know, to do. Um, so yeah. that's definitely the case. Uh, which I think that means that uh, you know it, it makes sense that someone like Warren Buffett. Well, first of all, you know, just like his his investment style is very much focused on equities. Um, but the other thing too is that as a public figure like that, like it you could single handedly cause, you know, a, a, a crisis, uh, and, you know, cause the collapse of the U S dollar. If you go out there saying stuff like that. So I think that like, they kind of understand that role of theirs. And so they would not publicly come out and say something like that. Um, on top of just like the other thing too, is that like right now that would destroy their reputation within their community. Oh yeah, sure. Um, and so they would be, well, and it would also, well, and it it also like, if it, if it happened quickly would destroy a lot of the wealth that they've made on the U S dollar. Yeah. To, to a certain extent, um, granted, like the, you know, the Berkshire Hathaway companies will still be, uh, you know, producing real goods and services that will be getting bought, uh, and sold in Bitcoin. Um, so they'll still have like cash flow, but yeah, it would not be like anything that's like a, a bond that has a fixed like dollar value to it uh, would be wiped out. So it'd be like a huge debt jubilee in terms of like all these stu- all this student loan debt, all of this uh, housing debt um, would all be entirely worthless. And so people would just own their homes, uh, you know, without any debt, which would be a really interesting economic experiment. And that might be the most exciting part about I hadn't really thought about that until I just uh, said it right now. So I'll start tweeting about it after this podcast. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Well, so let's let's talk about your kind of your projects that you're working on. Then, um, 
you you've got uh where did i write this all this stuff down oh so you just have like a personal like advising stuff right yep that's right so there like so I'm, you- I'm focused on uh ex- explaining the different investment theses for bitcoin uh and then explaining how bitcoin's uh, underlying technology works like why is it that there can only be 21 million bitcoins um and then obviously bitcoin's governance is part of that Gotcha. Um, and then Bitcoin X. Yeah. So Bitcoin what, X. What uh, yeah. I, I was, uh, in w- one of my focuses on, because of my accounting background, I'm very interested in, uh, Bitcoin's wallets. And also the, I think that there's, uh, some importance to the Bitcoin core wallet in the sense that right now, uh, the Electrum wallet is seen as the most useful one for users. And so people run like an Electrum personal server. Uh, and the Bitcoin Core wallet, I think, has uh, room for improvement. And so I've been involved with uh, doing code reviews and uh, adding my own code to the Bitcoin wallet, um, Bitcoin Core wallet. And so as I was doing these code reviews to, and that's kind of the first step to like learning how to contribute to a code base is by reviewing the changes that are going in. Um, I realized that there's uh, some difficulty in finding pull requests that I would find interesting and being able to quickly see the current state of a pull request. And uh, because there's a, you know, it's not like most pieces of software where basically you have, one person who writes the code and then maybe another person who reviews it and rubber stamps it and it you know moves along uh in bitcoin like there can be a half dozen people who review a pull request and do so in an in-depth manner and provide uh, very very high quality uh comments that then you would respond to and modify your code and update your pull request and so this this process of back and forth between reviewers and uh, authors of pull requests, uh, I, I found to be uh, highly rewarding and also a little bit frustrating at times. Um, so that's when I realized that, hey, uh, other people are having the same kinds of issues I am, and a web interface would actually help alleviate some of these problems. Um, so that's when I created BitcoinX.com. Uh, and there, basically, you see the list of pull requests, but information about the pull request that you would otherwise only be able to see by scrolling through all the comments. Um, those comments I automatically parse and then uh, bring up to a top level of view uh, on the f- homepage of Bitcoin X. Very cool. And just for people who aren't aware, what does what it, what does ACK mean? Uh, so ACK is, is short for acknowledge, but really what it means is that the person who is reviewing the code has approved it and said that they would, you know, essentially be comfortable with it getting merged into the uh, Bitcoin reference implementation. Yeah, and, and so for anybody who hasn't, uh, who who doesn't have a least a f- basic understanding of how that process works, you guys had a, a noted episode with John Newberry that was really helpful for me in understanding how that stuff worked. I don't remember what episode that number is, but I'll I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and we need a. We're going to have John Newberry back on the podcast um, this week, so look forward oh, to that. Very cool. So that that might actually 
be out before this episode is. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. I'm recording it tomorrow. Well, cool. So, uh, anything you want to plug, people can find you on Twitter at Pierre Rochard. Is there, there's an underscore in there somewhere, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. It's Pierre underscore Rochard. Um, so definitely that's where I'm at all the time. Um, and, uh, DMS are open if you want to reach out. Uh, also the noted, noted Bitcoin podcast and Bitcoin I'll put links to all those in the show notes. This is episode 24. So, uh, bottom shelf Bitcoin.com slash 24 is where all that will be. Uh, anything else, Pierre? Uh, no, I mean, go to the Nakamoto Institute, read everything that I've written there, that, uh, everyone's written there. Um, and also, I mean, I think that everyone should read, uh, Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos. Uh, and if they have the means or the scholarship, uh, to do so, to go take the programming blockchain class by Jimmy Song. Yeah, very cool. I, uh, I finally finished the Bitcoin standard. So mastering Bitcoin is next on my list. I haven't got to that one yet. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that's the perfect combination. Like that's the one, two punch, the technology and the economics. And then after that, you're good to go. Yeah. I, I have to actually get the physical version of that one though. Cause I don't, I kind of get the feeling with that one, listening to it on audible is not going to be sufficient. Yeah, no. And I, I got the physical one as well. And it's just good to like, if you're going on a commute or whatever, where, well, I guess, I mean, I don't know how, if you drive on your commute, but yeah, um, I drive, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. So, I mean, but honestly, I think that it's worth like waking up early in the morning, having some coffee and just like reading a chapter. <laughs> Very cool. Cool. All right, man. Well, uh, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. appreciate it. All right, bottom shelfers. That's going to do it for our show today. Remember, you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can support the show with one-time or regular donations through Patreon. Um, You can also donate with Bitcoin through my PayNim address or through BTC Pay server. I've got links for those on the website, bottomshelfbitcoin.com slash donate. Um, I also had uh, some conversations with someone wanting to donate to the show and kind of ran into this issue that I don't actually have a simplified way of of allowing you to donate with Bitcoin. So um, I am going to be working on that. I may be doing something where I have a different address up for each episode or something like that. I don't know. I'm working on it. So just know that. But also, I know this episode is coming out late, the more that you guys support the show, the less these come out late because I do have other jobs that, that pay my bills. And if this show is paying more of my bills, then this show gets priority. So that would be awesome. Uh, let's see what else. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at bottom shelf BTC. I've actually also decided to start cross posting on Mastodon. If you don't know what Mastodon is, it is a uh, decentralized social media. So we'll see how that goes. I'm not necessarily the decentralized all the thing guy things guy, but uh, I've also seen recently how some people were deplatformed and coordinated moves by big social media companies and kind of just lost 
all of their access to their audience at once. So I also think it's smart to be spread out across multiple platforms. So uh, I am still, I may be behind a couple episodes on posting to YouTube. Uh, I'll, I'll try and get caught up on that. That's just not my primary thing. Audio is my primary thing. So uh, I'm on Twitter at Bottom Shelf BTC. I'm on Mastodon at Bottom Shelf BTC at Mastodon.social. And um, what else? I'm on Instagram, but that's mostly just memes. So, uh, and, and when I get a good meme, I post it on Twitter anyway. So, and now Mastodon, I guess. So uh, hit me up on those like and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of the show that goes back to the podcast thing but whatever anyways all right guys next week i've got adam gibson one of the uh, maintainers of join market coming on to talk about uh, coin joins and join market and privacy and fungibility and all kinds of stuff so come back and listen and i really should have that one out on tuesday next week all right From Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, I'm Josh Humphrey. Thanks for listening.